Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around Him, and the impact He empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Okay, we are in the Gospel of Mark, and I hope you're excited about that. I am. Um, and again, it is great to be with you. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 29, which is a lot of verses, so I hope you're excited about that. It's a lot of ground to cover, and there's some really awkward passages in there. So awkward's not the enemy. I hope you like a little awkwardness. But before we do that, would you like to see some photos of the progress of the building? Okay, let's do it. All right, see, if you can remember walking into the foyer, there were these stones there that that marked out when they laid the cornerstones of the building. Well, we've been able to save those, and there they are, and we'll be doing something special with them. What that is, I don't really know right now. So, but we're preparing to do that and and keep some of the fabric of the old and blend it into the new. So there's some of those. Uh, This is the... uh, kind of the sports hall bit, and you can see there's another photo coming up here next where they're like putting things on the wall. We've been able to do like a full sports hall finish, so you might be another one there. Uh, Yeah, so you can see skilled craftsmen there. They're putting stuff on the walls and stuff like that, so it'll be like a a real sports hall that you could play five-side football or anything you wish in there and not like break something, so that's exciting. Uh, That there is a pit for a lift. We'll be able to have a lift up to... Uh, the, the next level, and then uh, it's going to be great. That room there is, if you're ever in the back, is the kitchen leading into, there was like a classroom. That's going to be like a claf- classroom slash cafe type space there, so they're making progress. And that is one of the rooms upstairs where they're uh, getting rid of all the old uh, plaster and everything like that and chipping away. So they are making Progress and it is currently on schedule. That's what the main sanctuary looks like right at this very moment in time. And is there is there another one, another photo, or is that it? That's it. Okay, there you go. There's a bit of an update for you. So it's uh, it's currently on schedule, and just keep praying about that. <laughs> so, okay, let's jump into uh, Mark chapter six, uh, and it's, again three sections and. Each are awkward in their own way, which is exciting. Uh, First section is Jesus being rejected in his hometown. Awkward. Uh, Then Jesus sends out the 12 two by two on mission. Uh, And then finally, uh, an interlude where we hear in surprising detail about the death of John the Baptist. Um, And so I was preparing this week, and it's like, how do you do two awkward sections and a beheading? Like that's, you know... It's going to challenge my skills as a preacher, so we'll see how I do. You can, you know, hold up Olympic scorecards at the end or something like that. So, but really, there's a lot to think about here and meditate on. And of course, those of you that know me know me well. Uh, I wish I would have divided these into three and had a Sunday on each of the three. But anyway, um, I'm verbose. So let's just go for it. Uh, the first bit I want to talk about is offense, and let's look at Mark chapter six verses. 1 to 6. And what happened just before this moment is Jesus has just healed a woman with a chronic debilitating condition and then raised a dead girl to life. And Aiden preached on that last week. He did a really good job. And if you missed it, you should catch up with it online. 
And it's like a vic- it was like a huge victory moment, and now we're going to step into a moment of like rejection. And it's like it was victory, and now it's like something like defeat. And it's like the, the advancement of the kingdom is always contested by the enemy. And if you ever have those patterns in your life where you feel like, you know, I just got something going in my life with Jesus, or I'm just starting to see some things in my life with Jesus, or my life in general, and then bang, I'm on my hit with like, oh, the next thing. It's like, have I done something wrong? Am I a failure? No, you're just, you're just a Christian alive in the kingdom of God, which is contested. That's what's happening. And that even happened to Jesus, okay? It says in chapter 6, verses 1, in the first part of chapter 2, that Jesus is on the move. His disciples are with him. He's going to his hometown in Nazareth, and he ends up teaching on the Sabbath. And it tells us in the next part of verse 2 that many were amazed at his teaching, but then questions come. And uh, go ahead and flip to the next slide there. Here we go. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What is this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And so all these questions, this is Mark leaning in again, this who is Jesus theme that is just constantly moving through his gospel. The town is amazed, but where did he get this? How is this happening? Who is this person? Don't we know this person? We thought we knew this person. And listen, the problem that starts to arise in these verses isn't the, the teaching of Jesus. It isn't the miracles of Jesus. They were amazed at his teaching, actually. The problem is where the authority and the power come from. And Mark, as you know by now, wants us to see Jesus, the Son of God. So we place our faith and hope and trust in him and come under his authority in every part of our lives and begin to follow him and to take on his way of being and moving through life. But the townspeople's questions are getting sharper and sharper. And it goes from where did this wisdom come from to isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? We know his brothers, right? We knew this guy when he was a kid. And we, they can't accept him. Because they think they know who he is and they take offense at him. Again, they weren't put off by his teaching. They were amazed by his teaching. They were put off by who he is and what is behind his teaching, the authority and the claims. And I just want to pause here and ask, what about us? And if you went out in the street, even still today, you would find loads and loads. I would dare say a majority of people if you ask them what they think of Jesus, a lot of them would say, well, I, I think Jesus is great. Um, I, I really love what he said and taught. Like, even if I don't believe any of it's real or he was even who real or anything like that, they would say, I love what I read of his teaching, right? And a lot of people would even say, you know, I believe if the world just practiced what Jesus taught, whether he's the son of God or he isn't, the world would be a better place. Like, a lot of people, I think, would say that. Because what he taught isn't the problem, right? Whereas the problem is, is submitting to him as Lord and taking what he taught and putting it into practice in our real lives from a posture of submission to him as Lord. That's when it gets to become a problem. If he is who he says he is, and if he is who Mark says he is, and if he is who the church through the ages says he is, then we must submit every part of our lives to him as the Son 
of God as Lord, but also our Redeemer, our Savior, friend, brother. So where are you? Do you like Jesus, but you're not really in a place to surrender to him? And you know, one of the things going on in our post-pandemic malaise and moment is just a renewed emphasis on our kingdom, right? Like everybody's reevaluating what life is like. What am I giving to the things in my life? Do I want to give that anymore? Am I going to put in what I was putting in to the things going on in my life, be that work, be that church, be that the kingdom of God, be that family, be that relationships? Am I going to do that anymore? And you see this creeping up in everything from quiet quitting, if you've heard of that, to out-and-out dramatic shifts of allegiance. And all this is happening in real time right now. So where are you? Are, are we reevaluating our life with Jesus? Do we like, look, I still appreciate his teaching. I wish the miracles were true. But I'm going to hold on to my kingdom instead of stepping into his kingdom. And just as the world is grappling with that right now, and if we're honest, we're probably grappling with that, will we let Mark's questions, Mark's the constant theme of who is Jesus be like a splinter in our minds, provoking us? You know, are we missing Jesus and like his hometown did? Are we actually taking offense at him? And I just want to mention as an aside, particularly for the men, you know, that question, isn't this the carpenter, right? Jesus was a carpenter, uh, like his father, Joseph. Uh, and so before his ministry, he was a carpenter. And you're like, okay, thanks for the Sunday school message. I know that from when I was, you know, isn't that lovely? He was a carpenter. Well, lots of times, us men, we keep a distance from Jesus, from following Jesus, because we feel like, well, he's a pretty feminine Jesus. Like, he walks around doing some, you know, nice teaching and some miracles, but he's kind of like a hippie with flowers in his hair, and he's pretty soft. And we think we might be able to take him if we had to. <laughs> and so it's just like, and you know what you're like, man, right? Well, in Jesus' day, carpenters were more like, they were a combination of craftsmen and a little bit of something else. So they were very skilled. And they worked with wood, but also stone. And they wouldn't just do a little bit of joinery, you know, in the corner or something like that. They would build houses and build buildings. So Jesus would have been very skilled at building and fixing things and maintaining things as a carpenter. And he would have been strong physically, working with wood and stone and boulders, which what they made their homes and, and buildings out of, six days a week. Without, like, some of the lifts that you saw that the builders in our building are working with, like, hard, hard labor without all the tools and things like that that we have. Would you meditate on that, men? for like a year. Would you think deeply about the fact that Jesus was physically strong because you didn't make it as a carpenter if you weren't? 
he was probably stronger than you are. And he was a craftsman. Like he could build things in the real world, not just preach sermons. And he could fix things. And men, you know what we're like with men that can actually build things and actually fix things? Well, what do we do with them? We respect them. And would you not just meditate on that, but would you just think deeply about what might he fix in you if you came to him and surrendered? What might he build in you? What might he build in your family? What might he build in your life? What might he build in our church and this city? Would you think about how he's actually strong enough to take you and to take on your sin and your brokenness? He's strong enough to endure the cross on your behalf, strong enough to defeat death. Would you just give following Jesus as a man a real rethink? And instead of holding him at a distance because he's like some kind of hippie Jesus or something like that, would you actually move close to him because of his strength, because of his power? And would you consider giving him your respect and your allegiance? Would you follow him? Well, verse 3 says that they took offense at him, and the word for offense is scandalon in Greek, and it means stumbling block, and it just means to be repelled or put off by Jesus, and they couldn't get over the fact that he was from that, their town. They thought they knew him, and so they rejected him. And the verb scandalon in Mark is used eight different times, and every time it refers to things that prevent people from coming to faith in Jesus and following him, and that's what offense does. It prevents us from receiving. Uh, if you know Luke's parable of the two lost sons, of the prodigal son, the older brother in Luke's parable, uh, in Luke chapter 15, gets offended at the father's radical, scandalous welcome of the younger son. So much so that he refuses to join the party that the father is throwing for the younger son's return, and he refuses to receive the goodness and blessing of the father. And... Uh, Luke puts these words in uh, the father's mouth uh, in Luke chapter 15. My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. That's the words of the father to the scandalized and offended older son. But the older son can't receive the goodness of the father because he's offended at the father's scandalous love and mercy for the younger son. When we get offended, we can't receive. Where have you gotten offended? Where are you offended at Jesus and his ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit? That's a common one we get offended at. Where are we offended at the kingdom of God? Where are we offended that he would not just teach nice, good things for us to live by, but also invite and demand that we surrender to him and his kingship? Where have we gotten offended, where we did not get what we thought we deserved or expected from life? And where is offense preventing you from trusting Jesus and receiving his goodness, his life, his solutions? And what if it's time to drop the offense? What would it look like to drop the offense? What would it look like this afternoon to admit, actually, the truth about me is I'm offended? And I need 
to do something about that or to put it in the vernacular, affronted. Is that right? That's what we would say in Belfast, right? Affronted. After 22 years, I'm, you know, down with the lingo. All right. And one last thing on this section. Mark's gospel presents Jesus in all of his humanness, more so than the other gospels. And even Jesus suffered family rejection and hometown rejection. Have you? Have you been rejected in your family and friendship group for following Jesus? Mark's first readers were persecuted Christians living in Rome. They certainly would have. See, even Jesus had family troubles. And their rejection of Jesus is so strong that he mentions that a prophet has uh, no honor even in his hometown. And he's, he's talking about how in the Old Testament they always rejected the prophets bringing the word of God and they often uh, martyred them because they didn't like getting bad news and being confronted with things. The prophets were rejected and killed. And this is a bit of foreshadowing from Mark because Jesus will be totally rejected on the cross. He'll be treated like the prophets of old who were trying to call sinful people back to God. And it goes on to say in this section that Jesus couldn't do miracles except heal a few sick people. I would settle for that. I would take that. But, you know, I guess, yeah. And it says he was amazed at their lack of faith. Something hindered their faith and they unable to be in faith, and that was offense. And you know it's abusive for Christian leaders to say, you know what, if you just have enough faith, God's going to do something for you. And if he doesn't, it's because you didn't have enough faith. So go get some more and do more and turn yourself into a pretzel and then God will heal you or something like that, right? That's abusive. But where there's no faith, no expectation from the people of God, where there's offense at the work and ministry of the Spirit and, and Jesus and the Father, then why would we expect Jesus by his Spirit to be able to do anything? Or even be present. That's why we work hard at welcoming the Holy Spirit instead of trying to live afraid and offended by the ministry of Jesus. And then lastly, um, I just wanted to speak to any of you that have friends or family that you dearly love, especially children, who right now doesn't look like or they just clearly are not following Jesus. Uh, One of the siblings of Jesus mentioned is James, his younger brother. And uh, he obviously was offended and rejecting Jesus. Uh, But I want to read this quote by N.T. Wright. James, at this stage, shared the general unbelief of Nazareth. Within 30 years, his name would be known throughout the land, across the world, as synonymous with faithful and persistent teaching and prayer and loyalty to his older brother, Jesus, the Messiah. And I just want to pray right now. And if you have someone you love, who just, it's like you can't even picture them returning to Jesus or following Jesus. Will you let James in Mark's gospel and the James that wrote the book of James and led the early church fill you with hope at what God might do? So just put your hand on your heart representing someone you love, particularly children. Lord, we... We take courage and faith from your word to us in Mark's gospel. 
And we pray over all these lives that are represented by people, you know, reaching out. And beyond what we can ask or imagine, would you call people, friends, family members, children, into your kingdom? Would we have faith for miracles? Would we give faithful testimony to you? But we ask, Lord, that even you bring people into their walk of life that we don't even know that are going to lead them to faith in you. And we pray there be a huge number of people come to faith over the next 30 years. So call the prodigals home. We pray that they be sitting amongst us, worshiping amongst us, and we pray that we would begin to see them come in soon. Pray even just a crazy, crazy prayer that as the doors to our new building open, that we would see people come back to faith. So let it be, Lord. Amen. Okay, I told you there was a lot in this. We've got to keep moving. Um, Jesus gives his ministry away. He moves on from Nazareth in the next set of verses. Then he does something really powerful. He sends out his followers in his name with his authority and power. And it just gets really clear that it's not about just watching Jesus do stuff. Now it's Jesus' friends are commissioned to go and do what Jesus did. And uh, verse 7, he says, Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. I love the rhythm and the order of it. First, he calls the twelve to be with him, and then he sends them out and gives them authority, and that's on purpose because we're to be with Jesus first before we do things for Jesus. And this pattern of walking faithfully in fruitfulness is to be with Jesus first and then bear fruit out of that. And that comes from John chapter 15, which is like if there was... We love all the Bible, but there's a special thing on us in John chapter 15 for our church, and it's a pattern of abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit from that, and we see this in Mark chapter 6 here. So it's be with and then go out, and it's really, really interesting. Where do you get authority from? Well, be with Jesus, and then go do things that Jesus tells you to do, and his authority will be with you. He gives it away to those he can trust. He gives it away to those who are in friendship with him. So if you want authority and if you want power in Jesus' name, be with him. And then go do what he tells you to do and you will have power and you'll have authority. Authority even to cast out demons, which is interesting considering what we talked about like two weeks ago, which I don't have time to go into, but it was all about demons. You can catch up with it online. And anyway, he gives them authority over impure spirits because it's a sign that God's kingdom is here and he's pushing back the works of the enemy or the kingdom of the enemy. And verse 12 uh, mentions to us that they went out and preached that people should repent. And you might be like, repent, repent, people preaching repent. Where have I heard that before? Well, the Bible Project that we like in this church, uh, and you can go to bibleproject.whatever and find all videos and podcasts all about the Bible, super helpful. They talk about like hyperlinks in the Bible or like things that call you back to other things in the Bible and they're there on purpose. And this is one of these hyperlinks and it links us back to Mark chapter one, which you were probably thinking about, about Jesus stepping into his ministry, going out into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, rip Repent and believe the good news. So this is Mark kind of hyperlinking back there. And he's saying that Jesus sent them out to proclaim his kingdom. That's, they were doing the exact same thing that Jesus did in Mark chapter 1. And that people should repent or turn away from the direction that they're going and come into alignment with Jesus and his kingdom. They should turn from the world and its kingdoms and come into Jesus' kingdom. So he said, this is what I did, boys. Now get out there and do exactly the same thing in my authority. And just as Jesus didn't just talk about the kingdom, he 
demonstrated that the kingdom is now here through miracles and exorcisms and things like that. He gives his friends and his followers the same authority. And there's a pattern in the Gospels where Jesus preaches and does things, then he empowers his followers, and he keeps giving his ministry away, even to people like you and people like me. And he definitely gives authority even against the realms and power and chaos of the darkness and the enemy that we might proclaim Jesus' name and his kingdom and see it demonstrated in healing and deliverance and evangelism and compassion and worship and lots of other miracle work. And you might be sitting here thinking like, okay, uh, that might be fine for the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, but I'm not sure that's for me uh, because have you seen my life and things like that. Well, it's worth noting at this stage in Mark's Gospel, Mark has presented the disciples as really pretty inept and stupid. They get things wrong constantly. They're full of fear. They're not sure who Jesus really even is. And they're kind of wandering around after him trying to catch up with this guy. And they, they look a little bit like the Keystone Cops. And it's at this stage that he says, you're perfectly ready to receive my authority and ministry. Mark's first hearers were persecuted Christians in Rome probably thinking we are so far away from victory. We are as weak as possible. They, how excited would they have been to realize we get the ministry of Jesus, we get the power and authority of Jesus, even though we face martyrdom. And if the disciples of Jesus and the first followers of Jesus were given this, well, maybe we are too. I think if he gave it to them, he gives it to us. He gives them some instructions. First is what to take with them and what not to take. And you can see that in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Why, why is that there? What's important about this? Well, what's interesting and important is the items that the disciples were to wear or have with them. Sandals, belt, cloak, staff are all the exact items God told Israel to flee Egypt with when the 12 tribes were saved from Pharaoh. And you can see this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. See, Jesus is leading his people on a new exodus. This time away from the slavery of sin and death and brokenness. The 12 disciples represent the 12 tribes setting out in the power and protection of Jesus. In the first exodus, God was doing a new thing. Now again in Jesus, God is doing a new thing. And the disciples, they don't need tons of baggage, so they don't get distracted from the mission. And so they rely on Jesus being enough for them. And verse 10 of chapter 6 tells us they aren't even to worry about where they'll stay because Jesus will prepare a place for them. And this missionary journey for them was about forming radical obedience and trust and focus on Jesus as their friend and Lord. And where earlier in Nazareth the people rejected Jesus and his kingdom, the disciples go out and proclaim Jesus and his kingdom under his care and keeping and carrying his authority. And I just have the crazy question of what if we did that too? Like what distractions might we need to get rid of? Where's the Holy Spirit speaking to you right here, right now, this afternoon? About doing something exactly like that. Jesus even instructs them not to worry about rejection. They're just to move on. Because it's not about them, it's about him. And you can feel the urgency in these verses, that there's no time to waste, that they need to move on. If if they're just rejected, they need to move on because this message needs to go out. This 
kingdom message of Jesus has got urgency and it's really important and I believe it's still important and it still has urgency. And what if we realize that we are still heralds of this message? We are still sent. We are part of Jesus' renewed people carrying his message and his authority, helping bring order to chaos in his name. And what if that is actually the most exciting news anyone is ever going to tell you? What if that is better news about life than simply life being about Netflix and two holidays a year and one year drifting into the next, you know, really nice, safe life? What if we're made for Jesus and his mission and his presence and his authority? And what if some of the intimacy with him that we crave is only found on the road? Living into our unique mission and purpose where he is sending us. And as we prepare to move into Cave Hill, what if a catalyst for that move is to us be thinking about how can we step into this life and I'm not suggesting that this afternoon you need to sell everything in your house and not take an extra shirt and you know go out in twos and live in a tent or something like that what I'm talking about is embracing the urgency and the mission and the surrender and the announcing of the kingdom and verse section ends with verses 12 to 13 And they went out and preached that people should repent. So they drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who are ill and healed them. And this is just one of the big reasons why we in the vineyard, we pray for the sick, we do deliverance when it's needed, and much, much more. Because Jesus gives his ministry away and we can participate in it. Will we live as sent ones and not just the watching ones, watching Jesus or other people do the ministry? Of Jesus. Well, lastly, we need to move on to which kingdom? Which kingdom? I must confess, as I said earlier, I did wrestle with how to preach about a beheading. And uh, in the summer, Harmony and I had the joy of visiting Andy and Dana Masters, who lead Lagan Valley Vineyard in their home. We had a nice meal with them. Uh, but they do kind of nightly devotions with their three young, beautiful children. And uh, we got there, and it was actually these verses. And Andy, I just loved watching him squirm and try and find, like, what am I going to talk to, like, my young children about when we're talking about John the Baptist being beheaded? It was great. Anyway, (laughs) Andy is never really lost for words, except then, which was great. Anyway, um, when we last heard about John the Baptist, it was back in chapter 1, and we heard that he'd been thrown into prison. This is Jesus' cousin. And now we find out that Herod, the hated puppet king installed by the Romans, has had him murdered. And this all comes up because even Herod had heard about Jesus. And we see this in verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And so Herod's heard about Jesus, he's heard about his disciples and the wonders that God is doing through them, and he's trying to figure out what's going on, or as Mark would tell us, who is this Jesus? And so it goes on to verses 15 and 16. Others said he's Elijah, and still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So there we find out what happened to John Baptist. Herod had him beheaded and murdered. It's really interesting, actually. Herod is really interested in in Jesus and who he is, and he has a higher opinion of Jesus even than Jesus' own family. But high opinion of someone doesn't mean faith in them, 
Mark is concerned with showing us Jesus. There's many people, as I said before, in our world who like Jesus or have a high opinion of Jesus, but that is really different to saving faith in Jesus and worship of him and relationship with him. So it goes, it says that some say he's a prophet, but others, and Herod himself, say he is John, who, who I beheaded, raised from the dead, which is kind of weird, but that's what he says. Um, and we don't have time to read the whole next of the pa- set of verses in the passage, but I'm going to just summarize and try and break it down a little bit for you. See, Herod, it goes on to explain that Herod had John in prison because John was publicly criticizing Herod and Herod's marriage to his wife Herodias. It's going to get really confusing here. Not to mention the fact that there's four different Herods in Bible times that are referenced in your Bible. Uh, this Herod was known as Herod Antipas. Okay? He's the son of Herod the Great, who was the one who initiated the slaughter of the innocents, trying to eliminate the infant Jesus. If you remember that from the Christmas story. Why we tell that story at Christmas is a little confusing. But anyway, uh, Antipas, Herod Antipas was hated. And John criticized him because he married Herodias, who at the time, was married to his brother, Herod Philip. Okay? So Herodias was married to his brother. And so uh, Herod Antipas had Herodias divorce Philip. Herod then divorced his own wife, which kicked off a border war that he lost. And then the two of them were married. Okay? I told you. Confusing. Crazy. Uh, By the way, Herodias was also Herod's niece, so it's just, you know, the gong show, right? Okay. Long, awful story. Okay, so verse 18, John's criticizing this arrangement. This is why he's criticizing them. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so he's quoting uh, Leviticus 18 and 20 back to Herod. And instead of listening to him and coming under the submission to God and the scriptures, Herod throws him in prison. So John's in prison, uh, and Herodias... uh, Herod Antipas's now wife and niece, ugh, uh, nursed a grudge, and she's waiting in the long grass for him, okay, uh, to strike. So verse 21, we see that Herod has a big party, and Herodias' daughter, his daughter-in-law, uh, dances for them. And let's just, it wouldn't have been a nice party. Let's just, ick, right, okay? Um, Herod loves it, uh, and asks her what she wants as a gift, and she asks her mother. The answer comes back, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Okay? So, Herod is really, really stuck because he made a stupid oath and a promise. I'll give you whatever you want, even up to half of my kingdom. And he makes this boastful, stupid promise because he thinks he's in control of everything. And then very quickly he realizes he's not. Ever been there? And he has to follow, tr- follow through. Uh, verse 26 uh, tells us that he was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to uh, refuse her. Um, he didn't like the criticism that he got from John the Baptist, and he did throw him in prison. But look at verses 19 and 20. Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Herod liked John. He feared him. 
He knew he was a righteous and holy man. So Herod thinks he's in control. He's got John in prison, but he can go talk to him. He can be entertained by him. He can be really glad he's around. He can feel close to the kingdom of God and the people of God without surrendering his own kingdom because he's in control. Until he realizes he isn't. And that's usually how it happens. We know what it's like to like Jesus, to like to be around him, to like to be around his people, to know that he is the way, but we want our own kingdom. So we think we can have him around on our terms. And is there anywhere today where we're trying to manage that, to be around Jesus and his people but not be surrendered to him? Or we feel like we are in control. And in this passage, something else is going on as Mark is using John the Baptist again as this forerunner to Jesus. Mark, or sorry, John the Baptist announces the coming kingdom. He calls people to repentance. He comes into conflict with the powers that be. He's persecuted and then murdered. And his journey in death foreshadows Jesus' death. It's preparing us for what is going to happen to Jesus as well. And also the faint whiff of resurrection in this passage. You know, Herod thinks he's resurrected John. That's who Jesus is. That's starting to foreshadow Jesus' resurrection and yours and mine. Both John and Jesus come before rulers who acknowledge their innocence but sacrifice them for political expediency. Neither Herod nor Pontius Pilate can see or choose the kingdom of God over the world or their own kingdoms. And that, for me, is what this section is ultimately about and why it's there. It vividly highlights the choice before all of us. Which kingdom will we embrace? Which kingdom will we submit to? Which kingdom will we live under? We all will have one. Which one? It's a clash of kingdoms passage. This is going to be my kingdom where I'm in control. And I just want to tell you this afternoon, if that's the case, it will demand something of you. See, Jesus demands things of us. He demands our life. He demands our surrender. But so does every other kingdom we serve, every other idol or God that we chase and give our energy, time, money, affection to because we think it will keep us safe and happy and loved and will get us ahead. Even when the thing we serve and chase is living our best life and us being in control, it will demand things of us that cost us, that will even cost us our soul. If it's success that we are chasing, it will cost us things. If it's money, it will cost us things. If it's sex or power, they will cost us things and very soon demand all we have. And that's what Herod found out. He couldn't choose the kingdom of God because he had chosen his own kingdom. So which do we want to serve? Whose demands do we wish to live under? The world's systems, our own idols of choice which promise us everything but deliver us nothing but bondage? Our own self-selected kingdom where we decide and we rule and we know best despite the shifting and changing fads and fashions that we flit around to, the shifting and changing belief systems that we jump onto from time to time, our sketchy track records if we are honestly looking back at our lives and ignoring the deep indwelt desire to know and be known by a transcendent loving creator who has a cause for us that is greater than ourselves, that deep desire that's in all of us. 
What if we paid attention to that deep desire that's in all of us? And will we then submit to and put our faith in Jesus that Mark so elegantly shows us? The good shepherd, the eternal word, the risen and reigning son who defined love on the cross by willingly laying his down, down his life for us. The humble king who holds all things together yet is intensely interested in the detail and contour of your life and heart and trajectory. The one who prepares a way for us, who promises you resurrection and life and forgiveness and formation and a place and a mission in his gracious, eternal, holy kingdom. Which kingdom, which master will we choose to serve today and every day? Why don't you stand? We want to pray for people today. If you know that you're carrying offense, you're offended at Jesus, you're offended at his people, you're offended at his ways, you're offended at a person, it's a stumbling block for you right now, but you want to be done with it, we want to pray for you. If you've suffered family or friendship group rejection for following Jesus, uh, your family, the church, wants to pray with and for you today. Uh, If you've got children or family who are far from Jesus that you dearly love, we want to pray again for you that you see the James effect happen in their lives. Uh, But I just want to very briefly invite the kingdom's presence here for us. Because I just believe there's a moment for us to submit to his kingdom all over again. Whether we've been following him for a hundred years or we are not yet following him, there's a moment to say yes to the kingdom of God. So we echo the gospel of Mark. We echo the preaching of the apostles. We echo the preaching of Jesus himself. And we say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Lord, will we this afternoon have an encounter with your kingdom? And I pray where we need its peace and gentle reign, we would have it. So come now for those who mourn and are in grief and have anxiety and fear. Lord, let your kingdom come and drive away the darkness and the fear and the anxiety. And for those of us that are ready to lay down our idols of choice, even when that idol is us, let your kingdom come. Let your gracious kingdom power come. And may we say yes to your kingdom in following you. We confess our sin. We confess our idolatry. Say, Lord, we're sorry. Would would your mercy overshadow us? Just pray there's a number of us encountering the mercy of Jesus. It's going to grow stronger like this butterfly in your stomach and you can't quite believe that there's mercy for you. That's the gracious, generous kingdom of heaven mercy wanting to break free and reign in your life. So, Lord, let it come. Let it come. For those who are sick or injured or ill, let your kingdom power come. We say, be healed in Jesus' name. For those who are wrestling with darkness, we say, let the kingdom come in power. Jesus, drive away the nightmares, the work of the enemy, the lies of the enemy, the torture of the enemy.
We just rebuke you in Jesus' name and say, let the kingdom of God reign and rule. Come, Lord Jesus. Let your kingdom be manifest. May we leave here with a greater sense of your lordship. And we just say we want to submit to you for the first time. We want to submit to you all over again. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.